0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 42, Dear John, Part 2. Last time, we acquainted ourselves with John Harvey Kellogg, the brilliant medical entrepreneur of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. At age 24, Kellogg took over the church's tiny little clinic and transformed it into one of the premier medical institutions in the world, the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Of course, Kellogg also became the church's prima donna along the way. He tended to believe his work was the most important work the church was doing. He increasingly wanted more money, more priority, more attention, more prestige. And Kellogg's magnetic personality enabled him to blur lines, making it difficult for people to know exactly where he stood on an issue. He was a magnificent dissembler, always able to explain away his more controversial statements. People, Adventists and non-Adventists alike, loved John Harvey Kellogg because he was, unlike many Christians, known more by what he was for than by what he was against. He had that Oprah quality of being interested in the well-being of everyone and not just his tribe. Kellogg couldn't help but make church leaders look stuffy and reactionary whenever he stood next to them. And after the Battle Creek Sanitarium burned down, Kellogg decided to write what he knew was going to be a best-selling book to help raise money for his new sanitarium. And that's where we're going to pick the story back up. Kellogg wrote his book, The Living Temple, at a time when the church was anxious to get along with him. And by this, I mean that the church had a vested interest in seeing Kellogg's book succeed. Ellen White closed the door on Kellogg when it came to fundraising among Adventists, and this hurt Kellogg deeply. But the book, the book was seen as a way for everyone to win. The sanitarium would get its money, the church's health message would get out. And more than all of that, it was a way for the church and the Kellogg to rebuild their relationship by working together. And General Conference President Arthur Daniels wanted it to work out very badly. Daniels had been the strong leader the church needed to stand up to Kellogg and things were still a little tense. But if war broke out with Kellogg again, Daniels didn't want to be the cause of it. So he would have to tread very carefully The problem was that Daniels was also a little wary of some of Kellogg's controversial ideas about God. At the 1901 General Conference session, Kellogg told of how he had been leaving the sanitarium to come speak to the GC delegates when he ran into a Catholic bishop. The bishop told Kellogg that he was doing an incredible work at the sanitarium and blah, 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 blah. Kellogg told the bishop that God was to get credit because God was in charge. The bishop agreed. God was in charge. The bishop then stretched out his hand and drew it back again, telling Kellogg that God was even in charge of that motion. More than that, God was present in the arm, creating the power the arm needs to stretch out and to come back. Kellogg asked him, Do you really believe that? The bishop replied, Of course I believe it. It is certainly the truth. Kellogg said, that is exactly what I believe, and that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. So Kellogg rushed over to the GC session, and that is what Kellogg talked about that night. Or, as he summarized it, quote, God is in me, and everything I do is in God's power. Every act is a creative act of God. Quote. This language is notoriously imprecise. Did Kellogg mean that God is in me in the sense that Jesus lives in my heart? Or did he mean that God is physically present in every cell of my body? Kellogg would go on to say that God was in the sunflower causing it to always face the sun. And then he said that there was a divine energy in our body And it seems like no one wanted to raise their hand and ask him to explain what any of that meant. Now, speaking to Adventists at a GC session was one thing, but Daniels wanted to make sure that Kellogg steered clear of such statements in a book that the church was publishing. Kellogg was popular, and any book he wrote would be taken as an exposition on Adventist beliefs, So Daniels had an uncharacteristically coy conversation with Kellogg. It went something like this. Hey, Special K, good to see you, man. We are so excited about your book. It's going to be huge, a huge success. So I just want to drop by and encourage you and remind you, you know, just to stick about writing about health and stay away from theology. Okay? Okay? When you're done, just send it over, we'll take a quick look at it, just a formality to make sure the bean counters are happy. You understand. Anyway, looking forward to it, buddy. You're gonna rock it. Ciao. Okay, so apparently I'm making Daniels sound like this California bro dude or something. Anyways, you get the point, I hope. Daniels was trying to tread very carefully around Kellogg. He really did tell the good doctor that his book could be quote, the greatest feature we have yet published, end quote. And Daniels really did tell Kellogg to modify his language on that stuff about divine energy and God being in sunflowers. And Kellogg said, sure, no problem. Everyone was happy. Well, when Kellogg's book ended up on Daniels' desk, the General Conference president was relieved, actually, Daniels declared that he could fully endorse it, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, sure, I mean, there was a few Adventists who didn't like the book, but Daniels just shrugged and said those are people who would oppose anything that Kellogg did. The book must go forward. But not so fast, Mr. Daniels, because there stood a lonely figure on the bridge of khazad Doom, yelling, "'You shall not publish!' and that man was Prescott the Wise, or I guess you could just call him W.W. Prescott. At annual council in 1902, Prescott explained why he objected to the Living Temple, and Daniels agreed to form a small committee to examine the book a little bit more carefully. The committee was composed of four people, Prescott, A.T. Jones, a doctor named David Paulson, and Kellogg himself. Now by this point, Jones was sliding into Kellogg's corner, So it wasn't a surprise that Jones, Kellogg, and Kellogg's fellow doctor all agreed that the book was perfectly fine. Nevertheless, Prescott persisted. He asked to write a minority report of this committee, which was basically just his views of the book, and the delegates agreed. After Prescott was done critiquing the living temple, Kellogg just gave up on the whole thing. The delegates ended up siding with Prescott. The Living Temple would not be published by the church. Now, there were still other areas where Kellogg was supported by Prescott, and Prescott did want to see Kellogg publish another book to raise money for the sanitarium. But all of that meant nothing to Kellogg now. Prescott had revealed himself as an implacable foe. So Kellogg went home and updated his enemies list. At the top were three names, Daniels, Prescott, and Willie White. There was no going back now. Of course, Kellogg hadn't really given up publishing The Living Temple. He had only given up on getting the church to publish it, so he's going to publish it himself. That's right, Kellogg had started his own outfit called Good Health Publishing Company. One of Kellogg's brilliant maneuvers at annual council was to try and get good health to be the church's official publisher of all books on health. The members of the council never seemed to consider the implications of this move. Kellogg was clearly creating more parallel structures, more reasons why he didn't need the church. Rather than going to the review to seek permission to publish a book, anyone in the church who wanted to publish a book on health would now have to come to him. Yet this parallel structure was still connected to the church in a critical way. Callporters. porters. A coal porter was someone who walked around selling books, magazines, maps, you name it. Adventists still do this today, though it's struggling in an age where, you know, people can buy books on their phone. But this was the premier way to sell books in the 1800s. You just had to pay an army of young people to spread out across the country selling your books. They made a little commission on everything they sold, so they had an incentive to hustle. Kellogg wanted the sole authority to publish all of the church's books. And then he wanted the church's army of young people to sell it for him. And he got it. So where does this leave us when the church refused to endorse the living temple? Kellogg naturally said he had the right to publish whatever he wanted. So he called up the Review and Herald and asked them to print a few thousand copies. They needed the money and they agreed. In the end, the church's refusal to endorse Kellogg's book made little difference. The church locked the front door while simultaneously unlocking the back door. The result was that the living temple sat ready to go on Review and Herald Presses on December 30th, 1902. And that's when a mysterious fire destroyed the building. I say it was mysterious because like the sanitarium fire earlier that year, the cause couldn't be determined. In fact, the building had just been inspected by the fire chief. Everything had looked fine. The fire chief would later say, quote, there is something strange about your SDA fires, with water poured on acting more like gasoline, End quote. In other words, the chief had never been able to successfully put out an Adventist fire. They seemed to burn differently than other fires. Well, thankfully no one was hurt. Most everyone at that moment was at prayer meeting. But it wasn't long before you could hear whispers that this was God's judgment on Kellogg. I mean what are the odds a fire would be started just at the moment where Kellogg was poised to have his controversial book printed? But you could hear whispers on the other side, couldn't you? Conspiratorial whispers, wondering a little too loudly about who might have benefited from such a fire. Kellogg, of course, was not a man to be easily discouraged. The living temple would be printed by a non avanus printer and no act of divine judgment was going to stop him this time. It's worth pausing for a moment, however, and examining the book itself. The word that usually gets thrown around is that the problem with the living temple is pantheism. That is, the idea that God is actually physically present in nature. He's in the leaves, the ants, the clouds, and so when you swat a mosquito, you've killed God. God. Kellogg always saw religion and medicine as two sides of the same coin. Whereas religion helped a man stay morally healthy, medicine helped him stay physically healthy. He wrote in the beginning of The Living Temple that, quote, there is no conflict between true science and true religion. Rather, he says, God is the explanation of nature, not a God outside nature, but in nature." Quote. Well, the truth is that the living temple is not pantheistic. It's actually a little bit more accurate to say that Kellogg's ideas are panentheistic. Yeah, okay, we're really threading the needle here. I get it. Pantheism says that God is within creation. Panentheism says that God is within creation, but that he's also a transcendent being. Kellogg never denied that there was a God in heaven, hence he's not, strictly speaking, a pantheist. He was a panentheist. Well, aren't you glad we got that squared away? Okay, so why do we think Kellogg was a panentheist? Well, just listen to this quote from The Living Temple. Quote, "'Suppose now we have a boot before us, not an ordinary boot, but a living boot, and as we look at it we see little boots crowding out at the seams.' pushing out at the toes, dropping off at the heels, and leaping out at the top. Scores, hundreds, thousands of boots, a swarm of boots continually issuing from our living boot. Would we not be compelled to say, there is a shoemaker in the boot? So there is present in the tree a power which creates and maintains it, a tree maker in the tree. End quote. So, Basically, all life reproduces itself, and it reproduces itself because God is in it. God is in the tree, helping it make new trees. After all, isn't he the divine creator? How can there be any creation apart from the creator? After all, isn't God the source of life? How then can life exist without the presence of God? Doesn't the Bible tell us that Christ dwells in us? Many Avenists are content to label the living temple as heresy and to confine it to the fires of our own forgetfulness. But it's worth understanding why Kellogg put these ideas in his book. The first reason is simply that, in a way, the Avenist health message was Kellogg's religion. We know that he was frustrated by the fact that the church, including W. W. Prescott, by the way, hesitated to embrace his views. Well, if God were in our cells, if our bodies were literally the temple of the Holy Spirit, then what I do with my body takes on cosmic significance. To eat that donut, you know the one I'm talking about, to eat that donut is to pollute God's temple. It's a sin. Kellogg preached that people don't value nature as the fruit of God's presence. If they did, then they wouldn't carelessly slaughter animals because God is in the animals. Doesn't Genesis say that the animals as well as humans have the breath of God in them? So panentheism helped Kellogg impress upon people the importance of practicing his health principles. It took on a new urgency, a new priority when you realize God is in creation. The second reason for Kellogg's panentheism was that it was his argument against evolution. Kellogg, because of his medical training, was forced to grapple with the serious challenge of evolution far earlier than other Adventists. In 1882, he confessed that he was perplexed with how to reconcile evolution and the Bible. He keenly felt Darwin's challenge, and he wrestled with it largely on his own. Clearly, life was changing and growing all of the time. That couldn't be denied. Panentheism was Kellogg's way to break free from Darwin's pole. It was God that makes life grow and change, not the blind, mechanistic forces of evolution. Panentheism was Kellogg's answer to the question of why life lives. When Daniels told Kellogg to lay off religion in the living temple, it shows how little Daniels, and by extension the entire church, understood Kellogg. To Kellogg, the spiritual and the physical were inseparably intertwined. Kellogg thought he could find natural explanations for faith. And in this way, Kellogg's science became the lens through which he interpreted the Bible. An example of this was in a lecture he gave at the sanitarium one time where he attacked the traditional Adventist understanding of the heavenly sanctuary. You know, 1844 and Jesus ministering in the most holy place and all of that. Kellogg said, Now we have the doctrine of the sanctuary. Many people have never really believed that because it was so architectural. One sees three or four rooms set apart in heaven somewhere, and Christ walking back and forth from one room to the other. This has been a perfectly terrible thing to believe. Two years ago it dawned upon me, two years ago it dawned upon me, when reading the 10th of Hebrews, that the body was the sanctuary, and that is the whole message, the restoration of the kingdom. Christ taking possession again and the cleansing of the sanctuary, our bodies, so that Christ can work in us. Now that doctrine is so simple and so beautiful that when I go out into the world with that doctrine and tell them that man is upon such a different level, instead of being a clot of clay that dies and rots and goes down into the earth, he is a temple of the living God. End quote. This is what made Kellogg so appealing and so dangerous to Adventism. He's clearly ditching Adventism's first unique doctrine because he is biased toward the here and now, not what might be going up in some rooms in heaven. That's of no use to him. What's appealing is that his point truly is inspiring. At a time when many champions of evolution were teaching that man was just another animal or a cosmic accident, Here comes Kellogg saying, no, you are the temple of the living God. Don't treat yourself like an animal. You are so much more. Take care of yourself. You have divinity within you. Who wouldn't rather hear that message than to get the traditional Adventist lecture on the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8 about what room of what building Jesus happens to be standing in right now? Some of you are probably wondering what the problem of panentheism is. It sounds like a big, scary label. We slap on people without understanding what it means, like calling somebody a heretic. Calling someone a heretic can be a way of dismissing someone without really engaging with them. So we shouldn't just call Kellogg a panentheist and walk away. We need to understand what we mean by that word. So let me say, Kellogg's panentheism led to serious problems. Take, for instance, Kellogg's slogan that God serves the sinner. It sounds good, but then listen to what Kellogg says, quote, even when a man sins, God serves in him in his sin. When a man strikes a deadly, murderous blow, God serves in that blow, End quote. So because God is physically inside of us, mystically inside of us, when I murder someone, God is also murdering someone with me. After all, God serves the sinner. Do we then make God a sinner when we sin? The implications of Kellogg's panentheism were profound and often disturbing. What made it all so much more complicated was that these panentheistic ideas didn't start with Kellogg. The irony is that E.J. Wagner and even Prescott had echoed these thoughts ten years earlier. No one had said anything. Kellogg himself just fell in line echoing the same sentiments, even during general conference sessions. And few had batted an eye. And now Prescott and others suddenly have a problem with it? The stage was set. It was time to clear the air. Now, there were very real attempts by George Butler, Stephen Haskell, and even A.T. Jones to bring both sides together. And it would work, at least for a little while. Both sides would admit their mistakes and make some show of unity together. Kellogg would confess that he was done trying to control others that he was done trying to control the sanitarium, that he would just content himself with being a doctor and leave management up to others. He confessed that he didn't even know what pantheism was. I mean, well, if you say it's bad, I guess I'll just cut it out of my book. And he would make some changes to his book. But weeks later, Daniels and Kellogg would be in another controversy. Kellogg would never give up control and he would never completely cut pantheism out of his book. All of this began to come to a head at the 1903 general conference session. When a proposal was made to absorb the denomination's 45 sanitariums and put them under church ownership, Kellogg went nuclear. He used every argument in the book, every argument that he could think of to oppose this. He said it violated the Adventist preference for republicanism. Not the political party, but the the style of government. How could a handful of men in Battle Creek control all of these institutions? It wasn't right. He said it squashed spiritual entrepreneurship. Why would someone want to build something for God? Why would someone want to start a ministry or build an institution if the church was just going to take it away from them? He said it was good to have institutions decentralized because if persecution comes in the last days, then it's good to have the church's assets spread out. And then he said that meat eaters, and by this he probably cast an eye at Daniel's, meat eaters wouldn't know how to run a sanitarium. If this was going to be the church's new policy, Kellogg said, then he was just going to ignore it. After this epic monologue, Daniels spoke up and said that denominational ownership of these sanitariums does not have to mean denominational control, and at that Kellogg sneered, quote, don't be deceived, ownership always means control, end quote. The session dismissed and left that issue alone for now. Ellen White was among those who stayed in the middle, just like she did in 1888. She warned both sides to be very careful, and in a flashback to 1888, she warned Daniels to be careful not to exercise kingly authority over his brothers and sisters in the church. Daniels left the 1903 General Conference session tortured. He was in leadership agony. Pastors and members were writing him after having read the Living Temple, horrified wondering if this was something the church was now teaching. and Of course, Daniels couldn't ignore them. He couldn't ignore their complaints or their concerns. He had to do something, but he knew that one wrong slip-up, and the church could split in two. Rumors began flying that Ellen White was secretly supporting Kellogg, her surrogate son. Daniels had received letters from Ellen White that supported him so it was confusing and frustrating. Daniels wrote her and said that, quote, it is this evil, deceptive trading on your influence that gives these men influence, causes great confusion, and makes our work terribly hard, quote. Now Ellen White would eventually ride in on her white horse by denouncing the living temple. It took a while, but eventually it became clear that the book was unwelcomed. There would be no more doubt where Ellen White stood but standing against the book didn't mean that Ellen White was against Kellogg. A lot of Daniels' agony was due to the fact that Ellen White wanted to keep the door open for Kellogg as long as possible. She didn't want to come out against him and drive him from the church. She waited and waited and waited while Daniels and Kellogg gave each other black eyes. Meanwhile, Prescott stood up and denounced Kellogg's panentheism. Kellogg stormed out, but Kellogg's followers, including A.T. Jones, always, always ready for a good argument, verbally bludgeoned Prescott. Some in the church began to wonder if the problem wasn't pantheism or the living temple, but Daniels, Prescott, and Kellogg. Maybe if we just got rid of those stubborn old mules, maybe all of this would go away. Daniels truly, truly could be just as stubborn as Kellogg. Daniels effectively fired people in the general conference who sided too much with Kellogg. When Kellogg whined that Daniels just wanted control over everything, it was a bit like the pot calling the kettle black. Both men were dominators. Both wanted their way. Both were formidable, intimidating men. But I forgive Daniels a little bit because of the position he was placed in. Aside from men like Prescott and a few others... He had the impossible job of fixing all of this. And when fellow general conference officers, people whose job it was to help him lead the church, when those people were defending Kellogg, Daniels understandably felt angry and betrayed. Now, a lesser man would have just given up and quit. You know, I mean, I don't have time for this. But Daniels held on. He made mistakes. He definitely had a bit of the tyrant in him to be sure but few of us could possibly, possibly appreciate the pressure that that man felt. In the end, Daniel's steadfast course paid off. He helped the church get out of debt, and the only way to do that was to stand up to Kellogg. In this way, he helped secure the good future of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And aside from losing Kellogg and a few others, no permanent damage was done. In 1907, The Battle Creek Church voted, finally, to disfellowship John Harvey Kellogg, mostly on the grounds that he hadn't come to church in years or paid tithe. Kellogg had been expecting this move, and at first he just shrugged. He shrugged like a boy who had been punched in the face, and with tears escaping down his cheeks, told his friends that it didn't really hurt. But his real feelings were perhaps seen when he called a meeting of the sanitarium stakeholders, 28 out of the 700 stakeholders showed up and Kellogg led those 28 in kicking out Willie White, Daniels, and many other Adventist ministers who he said were not loyal to the mission of the sanitarium. Kellogg had control of the sanitarium. In response to losing the sanitarium, the church managed to regain control of most of the rest of the sanitariums around the world before something similar might happen. The price for this was in assuming all of the debt of those institutions, which Kellogg was only too happy to get rid of. More importantly, the church now needed a new medical hub for the work, and for that they selected a place in Southern California, far, far away from Battle Creek, a place they bought called the Mound City Hotel. Now, this hotel was built to be a posh tourist resort. I mean, it had heated rooms and this new luxury called electricity. But over the years, the hotel had busted. I mean, how many tourists would want to go to Southern California? What a silly business plan. So this hotel was purchased for a fraction of what it had cost to build and thus the Loma Linda Medical School was born. Kellogg scoffed. He said, The future of the Loma Linda Medical School is absolutely hopeless. But Loma Linda would thrive, while the good doctor's sanitarium in Battle Creek would slowly die over the next few decades. The Loma Linda area would eventually be recognized as one of Dan Buettner's Blue Zones, areas in the world where people lived healthier, happier, and longer than most everyone else. And while it would never achieve the kind of celebrity that Kellogg was able to command, it wasn't the poorer for it. And I should add that eventually Kellogg came around and celebrated Loma Linda, but that would take a little while. What are we to make of all this mess? What does the Kellogg affair mean for the history of the Seventh-day Adventist church? I mean, we could do a whole other episode of this podcast just examining the implications of this event, but let's not do that. We can definitely use the Kellogg affair as a convenient turning point in Adventist history. It was the end of an era, it was the end of several prominent Adventists, not just Kellogg, but E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones, who both left the church around this time. Wagner, for his part, had divorced his wife, saying that he was commanded to love whatever woman God tells him to love, and apparently that was not his wife. He began flirting with another woman. Ellen White wrote him a letter pleading with him to, quote, stop for Christ's sake, end quote. Thus, the Kellogg affair was the breaking point for Jones and Wagner, who for some time had been drifting these men were once considered the rising stars, the new blood in the church. Well, with these stars darkened, others would have to take their place. And the new stars who would take their place would come to define the modern Seventh-day Adventist church. So in the scheme of things, the Kellogg crisis ends up being a turning point in Adventist history. A nice transition period between the early church and the modern church. One of the characteristics of the early decades of Seventh-day Adventism was a certain lack of theological sophistication. I don't mean that as an insult. It doesn't mean that there weren't good Bible students or whatever. It doesn't mean everyone was dumb. This was actually a point the late Ben MacArthur makes in his biography of Daniels. The church back then didn't want an ivory tower, They couldn't conceive of trained theologians who sat in offices, attended scholarly conferences, and argued with each other. To the extent that the church had thinkers like J. N. Andrews and Prescott, their studies were meant more to provide close air support for the troops on the front lines. Everyone should be able to understand the Bible, right? So what was the point of studying Greek and Hebrew? If you wanted to study church history, just read Wiley or Daubigny. You didn't need a PhD to understand these things. You just needed a good book. Of course, we look back now and we can see the pros and the cons of this. One con is definitely that Prescott and Kellogg went on accusing each other of pantheism when, as we've said, in Kellogg's recollection, he had never even heard of this word before. They were essentially calling each other heretics. But what does it even mean to be a heretic in the Adventist church? I mean, Adventists had never tried to identify systematically all of the truth in the Bible at this point. They they just focused mainly on righteousness by faith after 1888, uh, the Sabbath, the second coming, religious liberty, the state of the dead, and a few other things. Sure, they had definite opinions on pretty much every prophecy in the Bible, okay? But... There were a ton of things in the Bible that Adventists were still debating that that weren't held at the level of doctrine. Maybe there was a consensus or maybe there wasn't. But these were things we could discuss and these are things that we can debate. They were very conscious about not drawing hard lines on every conceivable topic and then kicking out any member who disagreed. And suddenly in the early 1900s, we're having an argument about pantheism. I mean, this is literally something the church has never even bothered to think about before. Sure, Wagner, Prescott, Jones, Kellogg all had talked like that. They'd all used this kind of pantheistic language over the past 10 years. And few people truly had said anything about this. And to this day, it's not always clear whether Prescott was actually a pantheist too, or whether he just didn't have to think too carefully about how he explained things. Adventists then weren't used to speaking in highly technical ways. The idea of rooting through someone's words to determine exactly what they mean, if they were a heretic or whether they were orthodox, was just not something Adventists had done. And for this reason, and for other reasons, we slowly start to see the rise of Adventist theologians in the aftermath of the Kellogg crisis. Because, to be sure, there was a growing need for people to think carefully about what we believe in and to respond to increasingly sophisticated critics. So the Kellogg crisis was a turning point in that regard as well. And yet, in the end, the Kellogg crisis was fundamentally not about personalities or temperaments or theology. It wasn't ultimately about raising money or maintaining control of institutions. It boils down to this. Two different ideas of what Adventism was. To Kellogg, Adventism was only really useful if it helped people here and now. That's why he loved doctrines like the Sabbath, and that's why he loved the health message. He had no use for complicated time prophecies or interpretations of Daniel and Revelation. I mean, who cared? How does that help you live your life? So, the health message, eating right, exercising, and so on, became Kellogg's gospel. He believed that if we could make the healthiest possible choices, it would be possible to live forever here on earth to Kellogg, this is the significance of Jesus. He made the healthiest possible choices. And so, he is our great example. Now, I don't know what Kellogg would say about Jesus eating fish, but that's kind of the question I want to ask him. Kellogg had essentially taken a sliver, a part of Adventist belief, the Sabbath, the health message, and a few other things, and then he just ignored the rest. He then took that part and stretched it to become the foundation of a new Adventism. And this is why it was so difficult to deal with Kellogg, because he seemed Adventist. He sounded Adventist. But what he was building was only partially Adventist, or mostly Adventist, as it was traditionally understood. What Kellogg was doing was pretty much the Seventh-day Kellogg Church. And all in all, it's a sad affair. Now, I wish I could tell you that Daniels and the church went on happily ever after. Seventh-day Adventists have never had a problem after Kellogg. But that's not true. Daniels would soon have his hands full dealing with another problem that's been going on for a little while. The color line. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is history Project.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, I we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at avenishistoryproject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear,